Do take a seat and please reach for a Bible. It will really help you to have a Bible open uh, for this next part of our service. Um, and we're going to be picking up our reading in Mark chapter 10 and verse 1. Mark 10, verse 1, picking up where Jean left off earlier on. So Mark 10, verse 1. And he, that is the Lord Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. <laughs> 
Let's pray together. Father, our prayer this morning is simply that, please, by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see. However much we see at the moment, we pray, help us to see more and more clearly. And as we see more clearly, lead us more wholeheartedly along the path of self-denial. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's a question for us as we begin. How self-aware are you? Are you self-aware? It's, it's probably one of those questions, isn't it, where if you say, yes, I'm very self-aware, it probably means you're not. And if you say no, it might well mean yes. Like people who think they're very self-aware possibly aren't, and people who think they're not very self-aware probably are. It, it's useful, though, isn't it, self-awareness, knowing yourself, your, your characteristics, your strengths and weaknesses, how you, how you come across to other people. That can be a bit of a shock to discover how we come across to other people sometimes. And it's probably true to say, isn't it? Surely true. None of us is perfectly self-aware. None of us know ourselves completely. We all have blind spots. What about when it comes to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus, if that is uh, who you are? How self-aware are you there, do you think? Well, let's try and be a bit more specific here. Last week, the Lord Jesus said that being his disciple meant denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. The extent to which we're going to be prepared to do that, he said, is the extent to which we can see clearly his promise of future glory. We see clearly who he is, what he came to do, what it means to follow him, and where it's leading in the end where the road of suffering and self-denial is going in the end, a glory to come. Clear-sightedness leads to self-denial. Now, would you say that that describes your Christian life at the moment? And if it doesn't, do you think you're self-aware enough to know? Sight is the image that Jesus has been using with his disciples uh, in this section. You remember him healing a blind man in two stages back in chapter 8? And his message to the disciples through that miracle was simple, that when it comes to his identity, his mission, his call, and this coming reward, the glory to come, the disciples were still blind or uh, maybe partially blind. They needed Jesus to open their eyes. But the trouble is the disciples weren't very self-aware, maybe like us. They don't realize that they can't see. In fact, they think they see more clearly than the Lord Jesus. Isn't that why Peter takes the Lord Jesus aside and rebukes him for talking about the cross? Jesus, you need me to help you see. So one way of describing what we have in that long reading this morning is a sort of a spiritual eye test. It's as though we're in Jesus' clinic, and he's going to ask us to read from the top of the chart. You think you see. You think you're ready to walk the road of self-denial. Well, let's read from the top and find out. Now, before we dive in, just a couple of comments. The first is that this is a long passage, 9.30 through to 10.31, and we are going to try to cover it all. 
Now, my options are either I preach for sort of four or five hours and everybody's lunch burns, or we cover it quickly and we skip over all sorts of details. That might be frustrating. I apologize for that in advance. But do feel free to ask me about anything afterwards, and I'll go and try and find out the answer for you. The second thing to say before we dive in is that this is an eye test for disciples. But it also acts as a sort of, I don't know, discipleship simulator for potential disciples. So if you're here weighing up whether you want to become a follower of the Lord Jesus, this is for you as well. So stay with me. Here are the, four, the first sorry, of four eye tests, and we might call the first one the status test. Chapter 9, verses 30 through to 41. 9, 30 to 41. If anything shows the disciples struggle to see when it comes to the Lord Jesus, it's verse 34. Jesus has again predict, predicted his coming sufferings back in verse 31. Have a look with me. Verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. In other words, the great and glorious Son of Man, predicted back in Daniel 7, the one with glory, dominion, and authority, is going to go all the way to the cross for their sake, to pay the price for their sin and their blindness. He's going to become the last and the least for their sake, the servant of all. And what do we find them arguing about on the road? Verse 34, on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus speaks of suffering and service, and all they can talk about is status. And they must know how jarring <laughs> this conversation is in the context, because they're like naughty schoolboys, aren't they? When Jesus asked them about it, verse 34, they kept silent. Nobody could think of anything to say. Embarrassing. But it is a very human discussion, this, isn't it? We can be so very obsessed with status and standing. It's a real joy for us at Duke Street to, to have uh, regularly people join us from overseas. We think it hugely enriches our church family, and if that's you, you are very welcome with us. Now, as you explore British life and culture, you'll, you'll soon realize that our obsession with status often focuses on the question of class. We sort people up and down the social ladder based on things like their accent, their education, their income, and then we assign them a class in our mind. We decide whether they're maybe upper, middle, or working class, and even within those groups, it gets so confusing. There are subgroups and subdivisions. It's complicated, and it's everywhere when you start to notice it. I remember speaking at a wedding once, and a frightfully posh older gentleman came over to me at the reception. So... Which school did you go to? Was it Eton or Harrow? <laughs> now, those are two very posh, very expensive schools. Um, Reading School? Brown. And then um, Oxford University, was it, or Cambridge? I think he was surprised to find that Nottingham even had a university. <laughs> and, uh, and as for working for a nonconformist church, I mean, I, I honestly might as well have been from Mars. I'm not having a go at him. I think he was just doing what all of us find ourselves doing. We're trying to figure out where people belong on the social ladder, and in our case, often, whether we're above them or below them. We are obsessed with status, and we measure our own status by comparing ourselves to others. And when we decide that we're greater than them, we're proud, and when we realize that we're probably lower than them, we're insecure. 
And we know, don't, don't we, that this can creep into churches, even churches like ours. We can get sucked into the comparison game and the ladder climbing game. And we work out who the most important person, people in the church are, and then we get close to them. Have you ever had an experience like this in a group, maybe even a group of Christians? You're, you're talking to someone and you're realizing that they keep flicking their eyes over your shoulder. They're looking for someone more important to talk to. Ever had that? I've had that at pastor's conferences. That's the status game. You work out who the nobodies are and you just ignore them. They can't give you anything. You spend time with people who give you something back, who boost your status. You angle for the, maybe you angle for the more public ministry roles. You play the game, build the brand, climb the ladder. But Jesus here takes the ladder notice and he flips it upside down. And he says, listen, in my kingdom, the way up is the way down. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. If anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. In other words, what matters in my kingdom is not status. It's service. If you're going to follow me, you need to aim not to be the highest but the lowest, not the first but the last. But perhaps we need some help to decide whether or not we're chasing high service or low state, low, uh, high status or low service. Well, Jesus gives us a couple of ways of telling, I think. First, how do we treat people that, we, that world, the world might consider being of low status? So in verse 36, Jesus takes a very low status person and brings them into the middle. There they are, verse 36, is a child. Verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. So we read it and we test ourselves. Do we receive and welcome and honor and spend time with people of low status in church life? People others might ignore or walk past or avoid for whatever reason. Or, or do we see them as beneath us? Not really on our level. And then we could test ourselves with the question of outsiders. In verse 38, we meet an outsider or we hear of one, an anonymous man who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. And the disciples are indignant. Did you see that in verse 38? Teacher, they say, have a look. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following, here's the kicker, us. He was not following us. He's not one of us. He's not in our tribe. He's not in our clique. He's not one of the great ones. Still obsessed with status. Are we? Are we still trying to climb higher? Or are we willing to become lower? Are we still trying to be first or last? Are we aiming for greatness? Or are we walking behind our servant, Lord Jesus Christ? There's much more to say, but we need to move on. So here's, here's a second test, and it's the sin test, verses 42 to 50. The sin test. Are we prepared to deny ourselves in the service of Christ, following behind Christ? Here's the sin test. The principle here is very clear. A sign, a clear sign that I, can, I really see Jesus and his call and his future reward clearly is that I'll be willing to take radical action in my war on sin. And I do mean radical. You heard it in the reading, didn't you? Jesus uses graphic language to make the point. Verse 43, have a look. Verse 43, have a look down. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Notice, by the way, before we continue, that Jesus plainly teaches the reality of hell, a place of everlasting conscious torment under God's wrath. Taking up our cross and following Jesus will mean agreeing with Jesus and his words. Jesus' point here is that it is such a terrible prospect, the prospect of hell, that we should be willing to do anything to avoid going there, even if it means chopping off limbs. Now, we're going to be very quick, aren't we, to reach for the caveats here. We'll remind ourselves that Jesus can't possibly have been speaking literally since none of his disciples have ever cut off any limbs, as far as we know. And we'll console ourselves that um, since sin is really a heart problem, uh, chopping off our hands probably wouldn't help anyway, right? But if we're in the habit of rushing to the caveat and the loophole, perhaps we should beware. Do you think that could be a sign that we're not ready to be radical in our self-denial? A man called um, Oregon, uh, an Egyptian theologian in the second and third centuries, was famous, um, amongst other things, for allegedly being so determined to win his battle with sexual sin that had, had his mother not intervened, he'd have, he'd have taken this passage literally and castrated himself. And we roll our eyes and we call him a fanatic. But the truth is, Jesus is calling for fanaticism here. If I'm not willing to be fanatical in the war on sinful desires that I find within myself, am I really following him? Is that the path of self-denial? Do I really see clearly? If I say I want to fight against watching pornography, but I won't install accountability software, or if necessary, get rid of my phone or computer or whatever it is, Am I really serious about killing it? If I know that covetousness is a particular problem for me and that social media feeds it, but I won't delete my account, what does that mean? If I know I have a problem with gossip, but I won't challenge my friends about our ungodly conversations because it might risk our friendship, is that the path of self-denial? Do I see Jesus clearly enough to take radical action in my war on sin? Well, again, there's much more to say, but we need to move on. So here's a third test. The marriage test. We're moving down this eye test together. The marriage test. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Up come the pantomime villains, the Pharisees, and they've come to trap Jesus with a question on divorce. 10 verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, it seems that there had been a gradual loosening of the rules around divorce. Some taught apparently that a man could divorce his wife for the crime of burning the dinner or just not being as attractive in his eyes as someone else. And we know that this isn't too far from where we are today. You might remember the the scandal around um, Matt Hancock being caught kissing a woman who wasn't his wife during the pandemic. He, he later said on TV that it was because he'd fallen in love. 
which actually is a reason our culture now often accepts. But wasn't it interesting that the outrage that followed wasn't really about him leaving his wife so much as that he broke the guidelines? And that's a good picture of where we are as a culture. If you're not happy in your marriage, just leave. Well, in Jesus' day, the bar had been consistently lowered, and here Jesus simply raises it again. Moses, he says, allowed divorce, but only as a concession for human sinfulness. Divorce was never God's intention. Marriage is, he says, between a man and a woman for life. So 10 verse 9, have a look with me. 10 verse 9, what therefore God has joined together? Let not man separate. And, of course, again, we find ourselves, don't we, reaching for the caveats. Uh, we say, well, elsewhere, Jesus includes sexual immorality as grounds for divorce. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul includes desertion by an unbelieving spouse. And it's true that you'll find those included in our church doctrinal distinctives. But Jesus here isn't interested in exceptions and caveats. He isn't trying to cover every possible scenario. He knows their hearts and how they claim to love righteousness, but how in practice they prefer to lower God's standards until they can walk over them with a very small step. And again, doesn't this search us? Do we do this ourselves? With marriage, given that that's the issue on the table here in chapter 10, when, when things get tough with our spouse, as they inevitably will from time to time, do we start eyeing the exit? When God's word on the one hand says, stay and work at your marriage, work hard at your marriage, and your heart on the other says, get out, live for yourself, which will you choose? And of course, the principle here extends far beyond marriage, doesn't it? So any, any situation where God's word says one thing and my heart and my sinful desire says another, what will I do? How clearly can I see? Will I deny myself, take up my cross and follow him? Again, much more to say, but we move on. Fourth test and final test for now, the money test, verses 13 through to 31. Remember what we're doing here together. God's word is testing us. We, we want to walk the path of self-denial, and Jesus is showing us what that means. Are we able to see clearly enough to walk this? Are we really willing to say no to ourselves and our sinful desires and yes to Christ and his call? Well, what this man in verses 17 to 30 one has to say no to is obvious, isn't it? It's his money. He loves his money. Easy, isn't it, to be very naive about uh, money and possessions. We tend to think that we're in control of them, whereas in truth, they can often be in control of us. They were certainly in control of him, so that when Jesus promises him treasures in heaven, if he'll just give up his money on earth, See what happens, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
And the only way this man was ever going to receive Jesus' kingdom and walk behind him in self-denial was to become like a child. As Jesus had said in verses 13 to 16, that is dependent, needy, with empty hands. He'd only get there, he'd only get to that point if he would give away his money, but he couldn't do it. And so he walked away sad. Guess what we do with this story? We go sprinting towards the caveats and the loopholes, don't we? We say, but surely Jesus can't mean we're supposed to give away all of our money. Isn't it interesting how quickly we run to those get-out clauses? Why is it that that's our first instinct? Why isn't our first instinct to give away all of our money? What does that say about me if I'm always looking to wriggle off the hook? If I go running for the loophole, in this case, is that a sign that I am actually in love with my money? And in that case, maybe I should give it away. Now, it's perfectly true that Jesus doesn't say this to everyone he meets in precisely this way. It does seem that money had a particular hold on this man's heart. But Jesus might be saying something like this to us, mightn't he? If the thing that causes us to stumble and to sin and to veer towards the path of hell is our money, mightn't part of the answer be to cut it off? To write some big checks? We can at least say this, can't we? Our bank statements will tell us whether or not we're walking the road of self-denial. It's going to be there in black and white numbers. I mean, if my gospel giving, for example, doesn't really cost me anything, is that self-denial? Or is that just ticking a box? If I, if I have to scrimp and save for the big foreign holiday or the perfect retirement, but my gospel giving comes from the spare change, what does that mean about my heart? And of course, it's not just money, is it? If I, if I use my home for my own comfort and, my, uh, and myself, but not in the service of others, if that, is that self-denial? If my ambition is to make myself more and more financially comfortable, is that self-denial? If I see in others a practical and material need and know that I can meet it, but I do nothing to help them because it would leave me poorer and out of pocket, is that self-denial? Do you notice that Jesus doesn't go running after the man when he walks away sad? He doesn't realize that, I've set the bar too high, come back, you can keep your money. Jesus isn't looking for half-hearted disciples, disciples with one eye on a heavenly reward and one eye on earthly wealth. He wants us to be all in, doesn't he? All of our eggs in their heavenly basket. Is that me? Is that you? Searching, isn't it? Very testing. Are we really prepared to walk Jesus' road? Are we really ready to say no to status and sin and self-rule and self-sufficiency? And it may be that as we hear Jesus spell this all out, we feel the same as the disciples in 10 verse 26. Would you have a look with me? 10 verse 26. The disciples were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And we might say something similar. We say, who, who will ever do this? 
Who's, who, who will ever be willing to give away their money like this, or to love God's law like this, or to fight sin as radically as this, or, or to serve people as sacrificially as this? Listen to Jesus in verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You see, left to ourselves, we'll never see clearly enough. We'll never understand fully enough. We'll never see the coming glory so clearly, so wonderfully, that we gladly give away anything and everything for his sake. We'll never so care about Jesus' verdict on our lives above everything else that we'll willingly suffer every, any public disgrace for the sake of his name. We'll never see clearly enough unless Jesus opens our eyes. And you know, it's at this point that we find an unexpected encouragement in the disciples. Uh, have a look down at verse 28 of chapter 10. Peter opens his mouth again. <laughs> Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And we think, oh, Peter. There, there we are. Here, here comes Peter. He's at it again. He's putting his foot in his mouth. We brace ourselves for Jesus' rebuke. And no rebuke comes. Because in a way, Peter's right. The disciples might be slow, they might be partially sighted, spiritually speaking, and Peter may have a terrible case of foot and mouth and a bad habit of telling off the Messiah. But in a way, he's right, isn't he, when Jesus first called them for all the things they didn't yet see. They did see Jesus clearly enough to leave everything behind and follow him. Their boats, their nets, their homes, their families. And Jesus tells them, that that decision to leave everything and anything behind for his sake will pay, will pay glorious dividends in the end, verses 29 and 30. Truly I say to you, he says, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. You see what he's saying? In this life, I'll give you a new family. Just look around. Christian brothers and sisters and mothers. And they'll open their homes to you. You'll have living rooms and dining rooms open, open to you all over the world. And in the age to come, at the end of this long road, glory. Glory. In the end, the extent to which we'll walk the road of self-denial behind our Lord is the extent to which we really see and believe in the glory to come. And if Jesus is right about the coming glory, it's worth giving up anything and everything for, throwing off, as Hebrews says, every weight and sin which clings so closely. But to do that, we need Jesus to help us to see. And so we come away from these searching tests of our self-denial, as it were, and we find ourselves, don't we, crying out to him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I see, sort of, please help my blindness. Show me the glory to come. So grip me with the glory to come that I gladly deny myself take up my cross and follow you.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And as we reflect on, in so many ways, the, the poverty and the partial sightedness of our own discipleship, of all the ways that we don't see clearly, the ways that we struggle to be a servant and to be treated as a servant, for all the ways that we struggle to be radical in our war on sin, or to obey your word and your law, or to be the last and the least, and to give up everything for the sake of Christ. Lord, in light of all that, we want to say thank you, more than words can express, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who became a servant for us and paid the price for our sin. And we pray that you would help us to walk in his footsteps and with joy as the glory approaches. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to stand together and sing about Christ's call to his disciples. Let's